Hello, this is Carsten Klein from Friedrich Nauern Foundation and this is Connecting the Dots, a podcast series that tries to bring together voices from Europe and South Asia to have a good conversation on the core values of liberalism and, of course, liberal way of life. We hope to capture the differing views, opinions and understandings of all of you. Thank you and have fun. This is Connecting the Dots, a podcast series by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. I'm Chavi Sachdev, the host of the podcast. So my name is Afia Salam. I'm from Karachi, Pakistan. And I've spent uh, well, about 40 years in different fields of journalism, starting from cricket. And, and from sports to environmentalism. Yes. <laughs> You've covered it all. Covered it all. Well, academically, I was uh, in this field. I mastered in geography and went into cricket. Wow. So it's like a full circle. Exactly. That is, that is very mm. interesting. I'm Dr. Sonia Binte Moshed. I'm working as an associate professor at the Institute of Water and Flood Management of Bangladesh University of Engineering and Technology. So my background is civil engineering. I did my master's in water resource development, and then I did my PhD in civil and environmental engineering. So my current research area includes um, I investigate the hydromorphological changes due to human interventions, and also I see the impacts of climate changes. And I also work in disaster management sector. So we're here today talking about rivers and how rivers are a lifeline. We all know that civilizations, economies, culture have all sprung up where there are rivers. But of course, things have changed thanks to us and our industry. Um, what have you seen in your career as a citizen of the world as some of the most disturbing impacts of climate change on rivers and our waters? So climate change uh, has manifested itself uh, in a manner that now everybody recognizes it only recently. But generally, there have been changes. Now, some changes are there for the millennia. That is how the rivers are. They meander, they leave their space, they move elsewhere. It's all, it's all geography. So that, of course, impacts the people. We've had, uh, uh, I mean, I come from uh, Pakistan, which has the Indus Valley civilization. We had the flagship site, which is known as Monjodaro totally dependent on the river, and its decline has not, the jury is still out why it declined. They did not find any signs of conflict or invasion, and they are veering towards the fact that the river changes course. So that also leads to the decline of civilization. Yes, it gives birth, it uh, thri uh, nurtures them, they thrive, and then they, if it moves away, it dies. But what has happened with the, the climate change, which of course is anthropogenic, is that human interactions have changed the rivers in a way that the civilizational uh, impact is there. So the, the communities thriving alongside the rivers have had to move away, move away. And it is an irony that some of the poorest communities live alongside rivers. 
whereas rivers are, you know, the sources of life and economy and nurturing life and prosperity. That's how we have seen rivers throughout history. So this is ironic that uh, what human interaction is doing to our rivers, maybe through infrastructure development, I've somehow sort of taken a spin on that and I've changed the spelling of, uh, I'm going to copyright it by the way. Uh, I write it with D-E-V-I-L. So, so because many of the places, no, I'm not knocking development because obviously that's what humans are for. They want to better themselves. They went to this upward mobility, economic as well as social. But that uh, long-term vision to have foreseen the negative impacts is a recent thing. And it may not actually even be that I'm very skeptical. But let me come back to something you said. So a lot of climate change, whether it's, I, mean, I think it's, there's, there's no question that we have clearly contributed to accelerating perhaps what were natural cycles, but I mean, we, we accept that we have caused change. But uh, it's not just that societies along rivers respond to natural phenomena that are changing. There's also things that we do in the name of development, like build dams or um, allow effluents to come into the rivers. So uh, these are more recently calibrated things. It's not mm -hmm. like they just started, but we're paying more attention to them. Is that something that you have seen um, grow? And, and what have been some responses to that? So it, it's interesting that, you know, the age that I'm at, Seeing those things, first, the river without those kind of uh, structures uh, in its bed, and then seeing the, the prosperity that those structures actually spawned. Because yes, they were there for uh, increasing irrigation area and the growing population to feed it and all. And now we know the downstream uh, effects because I live in, at the co in a coastal city and the delta is right there. So I've seen the degradation of the delta because the upstream water isn't reaching the sea. And the change in thinking also because uh, people were becoming more uh, insular. So earlier communities, because they were able to travel up and down, they intermingled, they realized each other's uh, strengths and weaknesses, they realized the, in, not just the interdependencies of people and economies, but of ecology. And they lived more in sync with nature than what we are doing now, because when we make an artificial intervention, then our uh, lifestyle also sort of, you know, uh, evolves to be able to benefit from that intervention. Maybe we are growing crops which should not have been grown, which were not earlier grown over there. They uh, are now requiring just to grow that crop because now our economy depends on it or our, our food choices have changed. So you need certain inputs, which are again human-induced. They are manufactured inputs, which are harming the nature, which are degrading soils. So I mean, we, there's a reason why it's called an ecosystem because it's not linear. One thing leads to another. So those kind of impacts have started becoming uh, very, very apparent. And in some places, very tragically and very alarmingly so. Such as? More so. Like, like I said, the delta degradation. So salinity Salinity increasing. plus sea intrusion. Now, you know, I teach. I teach at universities also. I've taught environmental journalism. And I do other trainings environmental, of environmental journalists, as well as uh, other school teachers. And I 
in the simplistic term for the uninitiated, I tell them that some of the things that people tell you will happen with um, uh, climate change, and one of them, of course, is the sea level rise. And I said, if you want to see a trailer of what sea level rise means, look at the sea intrusion that is happening in our delta. Because this, uh, the, in sea level rise too, the sea will come inside the coast. And the coastal communities are going to be wiped out, though the infrastructure over there is going to be wiped out. The entire economy that, you know, that uh, depends on that kind of ecosystem is going to be wiped out. And that is already happening. And people are having to uproot and move. Yes, yes. There's further. a lot of climate-induced migration. So, so we talk about climate-induced migration. We already are seeing the impacts of this kind of an intervention of sea intrusion that is leading to migration. So imagine when the sea level rise happens and the sea ingresses further inwards. So, so we need to also figure out a fix for this. Because yes, migration is something very uh, historical. People go in search of better life. There are seasonal migrants. They live in arid areas. They move to the uh, irrigated areas to make money, bring back grains with them. But they have a place to go back to. The danger about climate-induced migration is they will not have that play, uh, play, uh, place to go back to. Right, and it'll squeeze resources Absolutely, they and then that, of course, has its own ramifications, not just uh, uh, on the resources, about your social uh, structure. You have your own place, your clan lives here, you're comfortable here, you're not, you know, want to be interacting with the other clan. So the otherization of people who move into a settled area, uh, the women become very, very limited in mobility, then they are confined in those spaces, otherwise in their own area they were able to move. So it's a whole Pandora's box, you know, that we uh, are actually looking at in this context. Okay, so till now what we have found that there are lots of human-induced interventions. There are dams, there are barrages, and um, there is a lots of mismanagement. Uh, from transboundary perspectives. So what we found that um, when there is, uh, due to upstream water diversion structures, there are less uh, water flow in the downstream. So what happens when there is less fresh water flow? So uh, the saline water, there is a problem of saline water intrusion. Coming so, in from the sea. Yeah, from the, coming from the sea. So uh, it is creating severe problems in Bangladesh. I have visited so many area, coastal areas, and I have seen that there is a drastic decline in soil fertility and freshwater availability, and it's affecting the lives and livelihood of local people. What's happening with climate change is that it's creating negative impacts, more negative impacts on already existing conditions. So this, this affects not just humans, but also livestock and yeah. the health of the flora and fauna in the, the ecosystem, uh, the biodiversity. So uh, what happens that um, um, in Bangladesh, we have Shundurbans, Shundurban mangrove forest. So 60% uh, of Shundurban mangrove forest lie in, lies in Bangladesh and the rest 40% is in India. So what happened that uh, these Shundurbans actually, they have uh, ecosystem, uh, they provide a very rich ecosystem services. And also, um, uh, it's not only for peoples, for also for other um, aquatic animals and everything. But this, even this Shundurban, they also uh, act as a protective barrier from uh, cyclone system surges. Uh, so what happens? Like when the upstream flow is low, so there is a, a high level of salinity. The, so, so the Shundurban actually it can sustain up to a certain level of salinity. So if if I now if I 
consider the climate change, uh, all of us know that the sea level will rise. So when the sea level will rise, so it will add more, uh, uh, like it will be more saline, and uh, like there will be a, a disaster for Sundarban and other aquatic ecosystems. And another thing that, so the dams and barrages, they don't, they're not only obstructing the water flow, sediment flow is another important thing. Sediment is important uh, for everything. Like for, it's important for Delta because it's a Delta country. So the, the, the Delta is actually built on, uh, with the sediments. And- uh, So to so, replenish that. Yeah, and also, of course, agriculture, like, uh, it also increases soil fertility. Yeah. So flood is a problem um, when it uh, exists that danger limit. Usually, um, in Delta country, we don't consider uh, flood as a disaster. Like not all the floods are disaster. Some, uh, some floods, which is within the uh, normal range, we expect it and we value this kind of floods. Okay? But the flood is disaster only when it exceeds the limits. And what climate change is doing, so it's changing the intensity, changing the duration, changing the pattern. So these are some problems we have seen. And also the change in um, weather parameters, like each uh, climate change is impacting or changing the mean temperatures. Uh, mean uh, precipitation patterns, it's shifting the monsoon seasons, so our farmers are not prepared for this. What have you seen communities doing to adapt or in response? Maybe they're not adapting, maybe they're just responding. You know, like uh, the uh, poor people in our country, they try to survive in every possible way. They don't have any other options. Like there are some people who have some options like um, in city areas, they move from one place to another, but the local peoples, most of the local peoples, they don't have any options. So they're, they're trying, they're trying their best to survive with these situations. So what happens that in our government level, there are some uh, research uh, to um, introduce salinity, vari uh, salinity tolerant rice varieties. So now, nowadays, like even 10 years before uh, our uh, rice, it's not up to that mark that it can uh, tolerate that uh, current salinity. And again, there are um, some uh, local adaptations like floating houses mm -hmm. and floating uh, gardens. Okay, so, um, uh, and with local materials. It's not something that we are importing from others. It's like a locally, uh, locally lit adaptations. So we could all learn from those. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, we were talking about climate migration and then the uh, domino effect on all kinds of things, women losing a right to mobility, resources being very tight uh, in the community they end up in. Um, otherism or socio-political mm -hmm. rep repercussions from this, and it's it's such a big um, problem. So, moving from this depressing scenario, are there also inspiring things you've seen in action? The inspiring thing is the resolve, and uh, I would credit the next, the younger generation, much more than my own. Yes, we have had, I've had such role models in the uh, climate change environment, paternity, I've looked up to them, I've learned from them. But the younger generation is uh, burdened with the fear 
of what is going to happen. It's an existential crisis for those who understand. For those who don't, and you know, there are teeming billions in our region who don't understand because they are in the daily grind of just putting food in their stomachs every day. But those who do understand, they, they are raising their voice much more than our generation did. Probably if we did it then, they, the burden would have been less on well, our... Maybe we didn't understand quite so that's much. That's true, true. But also, it, it, it is a cultural thing, you know, to be able to <clears throat> speak uh, with strength, to be able to call out name and shame. I think uh, the newer generation also, because it has a lot more tools at its disposal to be able to do that, to call the people who they think are responsible for the miseries. So I, that I feel is a, like a beacon of hope. And we've seen it, I mean, not just in our region, Greta Thunberg is there. Her country is not threatened in the threatened list. She's living in a comfortable life. And yet she spoke up for people who are going to be threatened. So those kind of champions are appearing at community level, amongst the students, amongst the activists, among the legal fraternity who will go do, do these public interest litigations. So that I find is hope. And as far as action is concerned, yes, they do get down and dirty. We are not even a year into the devastating floods that Pakistan was struck with. Mm -hmm. There are uh, parts of my country we still have standing water from those floods. And you see these groups of youngsters just coming together and over social media, over these groups and getting uh, resources to them, finding innovative solutions to clean up even that flood water to make it portable. You know, it's like a trigger has been pressed and everybody's creative facilities plus the potential for them to be able to deliver some good to people who are more uh, are not as fortunate as them has sort of, it's like a reset button, you know, out of that apathy that generally sets in, generally, you know, when things are normal. Yeah, well, you're making me feel more hopeful than I was when we started talking, so that's good. Thank you. <laughs> but do you think, um, so, you know, what I'm hearing you say is younger activists, citizens are, uh, are, are taking some onus. What about at the community level and the government level? Where do you think we're at and where do you think we need to be? So, so I mean, you made me start with hope. <laughs> yes, there is a lot of frustration. I will not put the com community is the one that is in the center of the vulnerabilities. But from within those communities, those activists are come out. Who alongside these activists, the young students, the lawyers and all, they are, uh, you know, making a dent. They are raising their voice. At the government level, you know, somehow we tend to see governments as a monolith. They are not. They are not. So we, you know, uh, ours are very big countries. Uh, in South Asia, we have, yeah. uh, uh, I mean, India is billions. We are halfway uh, towards that. We're heading towards that. And the governments also have different uh, uh, governance mechanisms. So at a local level, if there's a champion, then, you know, it's easier to engage with the government functionary at that level, unless that person has completely shut themselves off from doing any good and just being a government servant. Uh, so, or rather an officer. Servants don't have that option. Officers do. But I have come across some very empathetic, very competent, and very efficient people. But again, because generally people see governments as a monolith, so they become invisible. So this is a problem that at the governance and policy level, we need to, we need more such people. And where will they come from, from within the system? 
maybe, maybe they, it's, it's your own, uh, the empathy factor. You, you, maybe your family background was like that. Maybe you belong to an area where you've seen this uh, misfortune and you want to, you know, you want to be the one to change the, uh, the life of the people over there. So there are people like that. But I think the capitalization of that acknowledgement of such people will maybe sort of shame others into doing it if they won't do it of their own volition. But I think it's a collective effort. So the voices, the pressure from the street, from the activists, from the youngsters, the demands are getting more strident now. And it is difficult to uh, sort of you know, ignore them, mm -hmm. which I think is a good thing. And like I said, it's not that everybody in our generation didn't do anything. There was a lot of good that happened. And even, you know, before, like I said, I, I, at my age, I have uh, older role models who, who just went out there. They were the ones who were doing some things. They were very few at that time. Now we still have a lot more. True. And more access. And more access. The main thing is, you see, it's the access that makes a difference because it's not possible to hide the inaction or the action. True, and I think with data mapping, visualization, yeah. or, or GIS systems, we are actually seeing more. Actually, what I found that government is also trying, like all our policies, and uh, like we are very much uh, trying to adopt uh, the new methods, new approaches uh, for advanced research and uh, maybe more cooperation. If we want to manage a river, it shouldn't be in a segregated way. It should be an integrated way, incorporating all the basin countries. So even the climate change issues, we can deal it better if we consider all the countries in a basin. Are there some adaptations that are in this plan that you can think of, like some specific examples? Some people are forced to change their livelihoods. So government also trying uh, their best to give them some micro loans and so that they can adjust in a better way. There are some uh, areas that the salinity is so high that uh, we can't do agriculture anymore. So sometimes there are saline water aquaculture, it benefits only few people, but agriculture, it benefits a lot of people. So there are some pros and cons but uh, government is taking initiatives, NGOs are taking initiatives, like excavation of um, culls, culls means canals. When we have excavating canals, um, so sometimes because of the salinity, yeah. they also have freshwater crisis for drinking purposes. Right. So uh, digging the canals, uh, it helps um, as a reservoir. What about um, litigation? So I feel like, some places now have made ecocide yeah. a finable crime. And people are complying because it hits them in the wallet, even if they don't have an environmental conscience. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think? Is that a carrot so, stick approach? Uh, I think humans work on carrot stick. It's uh, human nature. But when do we bite, uh, uh, you know, pay attention to the stick? You said it yourself, when it hits your wallet. So if the corporate sector has been profiting of the natural resources uh, to the detriment of those resources. Like rivers, where they're pumping effluents. Rivers and uh, all water bodies, in fact, they're pumping effluents. They're extracting more than, you know, they can, that can be naturally recharged, all those things. So pro if profit was the only driving factor, then, you know, there's, there's, a, there's no conversation happening. But because there's this street sentiment that is showing them what they are doing is wrong, 
or it's criminal not just morally wrong but it is now legally wrong it is criminal to do these things uh they are pulling up their socks to their credit it may not their benefits may not be apparent because the damage has been over so many years and it's going to be very difficult to sort of clean up but there has to be a starting point somewhere and many of them are cleaning up their act their processes are becoming more compliant with the laws of the country those laws of the country are actually taking into account the needs of the environment so i think it's they, these efforts everywhere need to be uh, lauded and uh, the civil society's role i would say rather than going and doing things although that's not possible to sit aside you know and only be a watchdog but i think the role of a watchdog is important it's it's essential to see that these things are being done by the corporates by the governments by the government departments by whoever needs to do it because they all have signed on to a certain as a citizen you sign on to the constitution as a citizen you need to follow that constitution it doesn't matter if you are a citizen in a small village in a community where you are bearing the brunt you are also still a citizen if you are a ceo of a, of a of a manufacturing concern so i think once those things starts uh, you know becoming more universal you will see uh, a change but my generation may not see that but at least we have seen a start we have seen some many industries uh improving their processes and not just the processes they these industries are run by people they are newer younger generation who are entering those industries and they also do not want to be seen as the ones who are ruining their own future and knock on wood i recently was talking to a young person who's taken off a family garment manufacturing business and he actually wouldn't speak to us because uh, they're so aware of how they're brushing past or dealing with a non-compliance yeah uh, so so it's only rivers. when they start owning and internalizing that no we, we were the part of the problem we need to fix the problem because our children are eating the same kind of food that is coming from these uh, you know water bodies like for fish now it's gone into the food chain the plastic absolutely so what metals in in i live in mumbai the fish off of our coasts is just yeah, toxic yeah. absolutely same here same in my country so so it's a very real problem yeah it's so crazy how interconnected it is yeah. what would you say off the top of your head are the biggest um problems with the river ecosystem in terms of the climate change effects the variability the unpredictability because then you don't know how to respond so it could be too much water too much water too little water mm. and of course like uh, you know it's the population yeah, we always keep that aside as a separate topic it isn't if there is too little water it's in relation to the population right the growing population will mean per capita less water so so that is one problem but no other than that drought is a real thing drought is a climate change induced thing the shifting uh, uh, pattern of monsoon that you have grown your uh, crop you're waiting uh, to harvest it and suddenly there's this torrential rainfall that flattens your crop right so that's a knockdown effect on your food security as well or it doesn't rain and your rivers are just drying up and so so that is it and also the ea i think the rivers do dry up some there's tectonic activity that happens and the source of the river just go we have these river beds underground rivers you know 
so it happens and we are in a tectonically active uh, area so so all these things you know there's nothing that can be seen only in isolation that this is the reason why the river is dried up there are several factors and uh, similarly when there's too much water so floods are also a natural occurrence mm-hmm. now climate change uh, interplay with that is of course the amount volume of water that is being discharged and the place where it is being discharged where there never used to be the monsoon system especially if we are looking at the subcontinent so we are more used to the monsoon systems and that is uh, the it catches people unaware now again if you look at it if there has been a judicious use of resources there would be early warning centers the people would be warned there would be places which could be safe havens for them so that that is it where because that area has not experienced so much rain so you do tend to creep closer to the river bed because underground water is there even if you don't have a flowing river we have many perennial rivers and the Uh, so dang- uh, the flooding in pakistan this year last year rather uh, was uh, not the kind of flooding pakistan has experienced before which was a river flood this was not a river flood our major rivers never broke their banks anywhere it was the torrential rainfall uh, and uh, the gradient is such that the water just stood there and the houses crumbled because they were not made of that kind of material which would withstand so much of water and also it was in an area which never experienced monsoon so over there the hill torrents were dry and people kept uh, building settlements close to it so if you look at it there's so many people died there was so much of livestock loss and so much of uh, billions of infrastructure loss so people like us you know the nitpickers we question that can you make an assessment that had they not been in the pathway of water would the damage have still been the same or would the water have just drained out rivers you know are such pleasant beautiful places until they're not <laughs> until they're not yeah yeah um so i asked you about some approaches that people are or if you want to add something any, any innovative or practical approaches uh, you've seen that try to mitigate climate change impacts on so you know when we use the word mitigate uh our mitigations can only be very local because we are not the perpetrators of climate change right of course so we have to sort of scurry around and look for adaptation uh, models right what can we mitigate a country like pakistan has 0.85 emissions what do we mitigate and yet we signed on mm-hmm. at paris we have submitted our ndcs we've given the uh, the targets so countries who have given those targets just yes, what needs to be seen there is that they are they meet those targets yeah. right mm-hmm. none of the bigger perpetrators they've even rolled back so uh, so the targets are of course that we need to lift this mass of humanity out of poverty so we shall peak the general criticism is coming only because of the peaking people are not seeing the full commitment they see these new projects coming up they see oh look the world is moving away from this these people are still yeah. uh, on to the older ways of yeah. uh, you know extracting fuel etc but then there is this cap and then there's a downslide and people need to also realize that that is how the other economies function those they who made those commitments they got yeah. it because they got there before us that's the thing and again that was uh, they were the colonizing powers they had all the resources they took the resources from here they were able to develop so 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 yes now we can't undo history we can't go back and we can't 
keep on blaming colonization, but there is this new kind of colonization of resources that uh, the burden is again still on the poorer and the more vulnerable to be able to do something to mitigate climate change. Now, what we can mitigate, like you said, what are the innovative solutions? That, so shift away from, so there's a lot of uh, people who are opting for solar. Mm. Now, the actual reason may be the economic benefit or not wanting to live without electricity because you're, you're, you've become used to it. They, those people may not even know the term climate change or mitigation or adaptation because those are these, uh, you know, this jargon is something that the fraternity is uh, familiar with and so prone to using. Right. But the man in the street may not know what climate change is and why he should not be using electricity generated from fossil fuel. But it makes more sense for them to put up a solar plate on top of their right, small sh uh, shanty. Yeah. So those are the kind of mitigations. Then the mitigations is in the in in the places where they have been repeatedly hit. So maybe the first time they didn't get it that they this is not a safe place to stay in. A change in occupation, a change in technology that will give them cleaner water. Mm. Those. Also, so again, I want to sort of de-link climate change and environment. Those are environmental factors Got also. It. Right. Climate change is about emissions, emissions cuts, the, mm -hmm. the you know extraction, uh, and if because but, would we, you put we, hydroelectric power in there? So that's a difficult one. It is seen as green energy giver, but look at the footprint. The cement being poured into the uh, the dams and all that's not green. It's not produced with green energy. So, so everything, land use, the displacement of people, the, the, you know, these are uh, mega structures. So, yes, you do need to dams in some places to, con to store water, but the world is moving towards nature-based solutions. Storing water underground may, uh, into the aquifers makes far more sense than having these large structures of water because this is a hot region we have evaporation losses we do and then we're, we're damming up what's supposed to go down river to other communities so it's not only about the water when people think of water uh, rivers and yeah. uh, these dams or oh, dams are stopping the water from coming down no they are stopping the silt silt is what is also needed that water used to bring silt. People used to wait traditionally through history. You pick up any of these river basins, Nile, Yangtze, Mekong, Indus River, Brahmaputra, whatever. People used to wait for floods because flood would bring the, uh, the, the fertile silt and they would harvest the crop. But because they linked, uh, lived in sync with nature, they would not live there. They would benefit from the crops, which were sown in sync with the cycle of the flood and the retreat of the water. So we become greedy, or even if not greedy, we become too many. So you do need a lot more resources, and this is what they do. Then they put them in harm, uh, themselves in harm's way. And uh, I mean, nature's wrath is not something that you can withstand. No, we've known it to our cost far too often. What about um, any building adaptation? So I've been seeing stuff about houses on sil uh, stilts, yeah. houses on stilts, um, materials that could withstand water, of course, planning a town or a city so that you're yeah. not blocking the pathway. Is there anything else that comes to mind? Uh, yes. So it's not only that. You see, people think of um, climate change in terms of uh, emissions. But one other effect of climate change, one very real uh, effect and something that is growing is heat. Sure. Not just a day of a heat spike, but ambient heat is also 
uh, and the water bodies hold so much more yes so they they do hold up and the heat of course is uh, you know giving up so much of evaporation there's so much more moisture up there to come down later after the uh, the hot season but beyond that when there is going to be so much heat you need the material which will not absorb heat cement does it dissipates heat very slowly most of our the modern you know this this thrust for modernity has been it's an urban phenomenon mostly our rural houses are still cool throughout the region um, again because they are in sync with nature they have high roofs they will have mud walls they will have ventilators you know yeah. so they have to let out the hot air the the modern construction i'm not uh, going to say yeah, that was a wrong thing to do because that's the way you know uh, you could accommodate a lot more people in the urban centers but you cannot live in them in a very very hot environment without the appliances which use energy which is from extractive resources so again there's this yeah domino effect and generates heat it, it generates heat of course of course so i mean uh, we give the so that unfortunately has become an aspiration yeah aspiration because uh, this is the second flood the last flood was 2000 the last super flood we have floods almost every year so a lot of uh, housing damage had been done and when we wanted to go and rebuild i also volunteer with a couple of um, uh, development organizations and one of them is run by an architect who 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 has learned disaster resilient and by academically he has learned all that and he would suggest to them mud housing hmm. and said no we want a pakka ghar now so though there were other agencies who were very ready and willing to make them those pakka ghar but they wouldn't live in them because they would all have this sort of a shed outside and when we asked them the people gave you a lot of donations to because you wanted pakka ghar and you're in it now they said we'll see when it's winter or uh, right now this is a store room or we tie our goats in it because who can live in a pakka ghar without fan <laughs> or uh, uh, this thing uh, air, air conditioning? conditioning we don't we don't we can't i mean we would suffocate in this room if there was no air conditioning So so these are the things you know it's a, it's a, a climate change actually is a behavior change thing how you adapt to it mitigation is a big ticket item <laughs> so at our own level we can mitigate the kind of things that we do some of the things we should let go some other things we need to move to that would be adaptation but uh, for the big climate change threat there are other actors which need to actually mitigate. do their part yeah fair enough what can we look to europe for in terms of any sort of lessons positive or negative when it comes to managing climate change affecting our rivers or to protect our rivers okay so um, the thing is that they are more concerned about water quality issues so that's something um i think it's something we need to learn like the uh, not just water quantity so water quality so in our uh, south asian uh, water treaties we mostly focus on water quantity like how much water we are getting from um, upstream or uh, the, the issues but water quality is also very important okay so that's something we need to be um, aware of and another thing is exchange of data what i found that if we share data it creates evidence Mm-hmm. and in research evidence is very important another thing is mutual respect even when we are uh, talking something with someone so respect is important mutual trust is important but trust is built on evidences like we need to 
create more evidence so that um, our politicians, the, our local people, they we need to be act as a perfect neighbor. The negative thing what I found that many of the rivers in Europe, like the Rhine rivers, it's channelized. Okay. Yes. So th these are very um, negative for the ecosystems. So now they are suffering because for channelization, they are not having uh, enough sediments. So for rivers, not only water is required, sediment is also required. So for dams and barrages, what happened that it creates hungry river conditions. Okay. So hungry river condition is like that when there is not enough sediment. So it tries to uh, take the sediments from both banks. So there is, uh, again, there is a lot of river erosion. But for Europe, uh, they they are they channelize. They don't have erosion problems, but they don't also don't have sediments. So it's affecting their aquatic ecosystems. So it's not a natural river. It's something very artificial. Even in my experience, uh, like it's like for rivers, we consider a wide and uh, very lengthy and lots of water, but what I found that it's kind of, in uh, from uh, Bangladesh perspective, sometimes uh, the, this channelization is kind of canal. Uh, even from um, our local people, we can learn a lot of things, especially locally led adaptations, floating gardens, mm -hmm. and also the floating uh, housing technologies. Like we, uh, I have seen that uh, some parts in Bangladesh, they use bamboo, mm -hmm. so it uh, floods when it floods. Shouldn't forget that we need to allow flood in the floodplains. For example, uh, I told you before that um, not all the floods are disaster, so, because if there is no flood, the delta countries, it's, it, we can't build that. There's so no delta then. There is no delta then, yeah. Right, interesting. Do you see a way for Europe and South Asia to collaborate? Of course, like for increasing knowledge, the more we collaborate, the more we can increase our knowledge, we can share our knowledge base, we can share uh, our perspectives. When we think about climate change, we shouldn't forget about the human interventions, like uh, any kind of management, we need to consider both, like the human-induced interventions and climate-induced changes. Right. We shouldn't focus only one part, we should also consider the other other parts because because of the mismanagement issues, mismanagement of structural interventions, there are a lot of problems. So there are two types of collaboration that can uh, come about, and ideally that is how we will be able to do these things. One, of course, is the uh, best practices to be shared. They have, uh, you know, cleaned up quite a lot of their uh, resources, but they require the kind of monetary resources which our countries do not have. Right. So it uh, has to be a technical exchange, uh, also, you know, train the trainer kind of a thing, so we don't have to be sort of all the time dependent. So people here need to learn the technologies, maybe make those uh, technical uh, things over here, the, uh, the tools that we need to clean, clean it up. But before that, the, uh, I mean, the resources can also be uh, asked for, but the political will needs to exist. People think it's a very frivolous thing. They don't realize it's an essential thing. It's a human rights thing. So things need to be seen from a human rights angle. They need to be seen from a political and a governance angle. And then, you know, because if, they, if those who we are asking for, for help, even the knowledge, the technology, 
as well as monetary resources if they see there is no buy in at the level so it's a wasted activity and it's their taxpayers hard earned money they cannot just fritter it away so there needs to be that you know ex- ex- acceptance that we need to do this together right. and we need to help them but then those who uh, are going to be helped also need to know that they they have to show that they have been helped yeah and that they actually going to use it yeah one thing in climate change is that it creates uncertainty flood is very common okay so we are used to it but sometimes climate change actually it changes the intensity and duration and um, what i found from the local peoples like they mentioned that they are used to in a single flood in a year but nowadays its frequency is increasing like it's two or three times so they are not uh, well prepared for that okay and also we in bangladesh we have um, like the uh, dry season is getting drier and the wet season is getting wetter and the shift uh, shift of monsoon so uh, for a agriculture country like bangladesh uh, what happens like if there is a shift in monsoons the farmers are not aware of that so it impacts their um, planning yield. and the cycling uh, over the uh, sowing uh, reaping yeah, yeah everything it's very bad Yeah. Yeah, we've had we've had the same stuff. It rains, it rains too hard, the topsoil is too dry because it's been too uh, there's been drought conditions before, so then the topsoil is gone. There's no way the reservoirs can get uh, or the aquifers can get recharged and instead there's just torrential rain and it just takes away the crops instead of nourishing them and letting them grow. So we have areas where the salinity is rising we also have an institute where they're trying to make crops that are uh, yeah. more saline hardy okay but mm. is this the answer <laughs> i don't know <laughs> it's an adaptation at least they're trying right is there anything else you'd like to add well i think you know people use the term global village very very often mm-hmm. but the import of those two words have not reached everybody we are in a connected interconnected system and it cannot be okay, let them deal with this they are doing this and let's look at our own problems it has to be a collaborative approach and you, you mentioned europe and european union that is i think an excellent example and even the african union by the way those countries had you know such fratricidal wars tribal wars in our living memory and they are in a union and they are uh, you know having economic collaboration and uh, educational collaboration and uh, healthcare reforms and european countries also kill millions of each other's uh, people i mean you can edit it out if you want that's fine but my point is ki countries which were enemies at in not too far uh, a time have become a one unit and look at the way they've prospered it's the people who matter it's how you lift the lives of the people are you hopeful about the future for um, rivers uh, <laughs> so i want to be uh, an optimistic person uh, even in the age of war we need to try we don't have any options we need to try we need to make friendship um, with all others with neighboring countries so like i said i vest a lot of hope in the new generation who will grow up without the kind of biases we were hamstrung by and i'm hoping that that can uh, you know foster a better region a healthier region a more peaceful region and a more economically you know a, a, an eco eco friendly region yes i hope your uh, 
enthusiasm rubs off on all the people who are listening <laughs> it's fine it won't rub off on all but even if it rubs on on the people who realize that uh, we we have pride our hand at fighting what yeah. did it deliver yeah and these rivers are so let's are try something common, else right? yeah let's not... try working together and rivers don't have boundaries they benefit everyone they flow until they are sort of tampered with we need to try we need to be hopeful that's i think like we need to try our best well, thank you thank you for that hope and thank you for talking to us <laughs> thank you appreciate it thank you so much thank you hello this is connecting the dots a podcast series by the friedrich naumann foundation i'm chavi sachdev the host of the podcast 